Hello. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Can you hear me? Yes, I Good. can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. Gotcha. Hello. Awesome. Uh, yep. I gotcha. Um, well, I saw it was your birthday on Instagram, so happy birthday. Hey. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you for taking the time to let us interview you. Um, I know you said you would listen to one of the episodes, but um, I don't know like what all you know about it. But basically, our goal is just to like start a conversation about the Southern residents and um, the impact of killer whales kind of throughout the community and whatnot. Um, so to start, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into this, um, like what your official title is and everything? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with, with mine. Tass, Tassie will be here in a second too. She's just getting ready for a trip, but I'll, 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 um, I'll we talk can, about Yeah, we can wait a second back. too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what for, I- for my, my background, I've been, well, I've been obsessed with whales and dolphins my whole life, really. I mean, since I was young enough to remember, I've, I've kind of been just infatuated with the ocean, but specifically whales and dolphins. And, um, I grew up, I was kind of born in Scotland, grew up on the West coast of Africa till I was about five and, and then spent a lot of time in Ontario kind of landlocked. So the only way I could really access whales and dolphins was through books and, and other types of media. So, um, I was kind of fortunate though, cause my family had a place in Florida that we'd go to most winters and I got to spend time near the water and, and, um, basically just spent my whole trips looking for bottlenose dolphins and kind of had a pretty formative experience there when I had, uh, this one bottlenose dolphin, I was just sitting watching it on this kind of seawall for hours and it just kind of came up to my feet and started hanging out with me and like jaw snapping and rolling and looking at me and we'd kind of walk up and down the seawall together and, and, um, you know, I'd go back every day and he'd be there and we'd just kind of go for walks and, it was kind of really after that I was sort of hooked and I, in 2007, I decided to move out to BC to kind of chase the dream of, of studying marine biology and working with killer whales and ended up taking, um, arts and sciences through a university transfer program in Vancouver and started volunteering at the aquarium. Uh, got a job on a whale watching boat and that's kind of where I started to do more of the photography and, and um, getting to know the whales more individually, which is really what led to me being able to work with fisheries and oceans now doing the photo ID analysis for one of the longest ongoing killer whale studies in, on the planet. So that's kind of uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, that's super awesome. Um, can you tell us maybe why photo identification is so important for killer whale biology? Yeah, I mean, photo ID is, I mean, it's really cool just to get to know who the animals are, but from, from a more scientific point of view, it's, it's a good, it's a good way to track the population, of course, and, and keep track of births and deaths. And the only reason we know there's 73 Southern residents left is because of this photo ID program and tracking the population for so long. And especially with the big killer whales, which are the ones that we specifically work with, our, our first, um, entry into the database goes back to 1958. So, you know, it's not just a picture of five or 10 years. We're, we're talking about a picture of multiple decades. And the longer that goes on, we get a more accurate picture of what's going on on the coast um, with our whales and, and how their population is changing. And Tassley is on the phone with us now. So, Hi, thank you. Sorry for uh, the wait. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for joining us. How are you? 
I'm great. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. Wonderful. And uh, sorry, I I know uh, Elizabeth and uh, Erica. There's two of you on the call. Yes. Erica. Hi. Sorry, yes. Erica. It's nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for taking the time to meet with us. Um, I was telling Gary a little bit about our podcast. I know he has listened to at least one episode, but basically we're just kind of trying to start a conversation that's inclusive to those in and outside of the scientific community um, to just help people learn more about whales and just like the different experiences that people have. So we've interviewed um, authors, I, you guys are the first photographers, really scientists, um, a variety of different types of people just to get different perspectives. So um, that's kind of what our goal is here. Wonderful. It sounds great. Yeah. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? I know um, he had just answered a question about like the importance of wildlife photography and his background. So if you want to tell us about that, and then if you want to piggyback off of that, feel free. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I don't have any, any big moment, any earth shattering uh, interaction with a dolphin or, <laughs> or a whale or anything like that. It was just one of those things where I'm sure most people that are into whales and dolphins, you don't really have a specific reason. It's just kind of the way you were built, I suppose. Um, I do have a, an interest though, or I did, especially when I was little in sea monsters. So I kind of think that it was just a, a, a logical progression into wanting to learn more about whales and dolphins, which in my mind are kind of like sea monsters in a sense, um, being that they're large and mysterious and very, uh, powerful. And, um, so I, I grew up on a lake, uh, pretty far from the ocean. Uh, and it was just always looking out into the water and imagining sea creatures. And I was lucky enough to, visit the coast of BC pretty much every summer. My, my dad would bring my sister and I down here and we saw whales for the first time. And it was just like, wow, they're real. <laughs> and, uh, that was it. The rest is history. Nice. Very cool. Um, so do you do the photo identification stuff as well? Or is that more so just what Gary does? Yeah, absolutely. So we both got into that. Uh, we, we used to, but we still do photo identification just on our own time. Uh, that's the best part about getting to do the job that we do is getting to learn who the individual whales are. So, Mm -hmm. uh, since day one, we'd be sitting around, uh, on the couch on the weekends, like going through all of our photos and, uh, figuring out who's who and so, so what whale nerds do for fun. Exactly. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Wild Friday nights, identifying fins. Yes. Yeah. I definitely, some of my more wild nights were, um, naming dolphins with like, you know, the Eckerd college dolphin project or whatever, because yeah, same thing. That's what, what dolphin people do. Um, but yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, so what role do you think culture or killer whales play in culture? Because in one of our interviews, we talked to 
Frances Robertson, and she had mentioned that often she feels that culture is neglected in the um, conservation practices or that we kind of just like don't really um, prioritize that. What role do you think the killer whales play in culture and in conservation or the role of culture and conservation, if that makes sense? I think they're kind of a gateway for a lot of people into the natural world. Um, if we, if we look back in the 1960s and 1970s, the birth of the modern environmental movement, a lot of that was centered around the save the whales campaign. So whales are kind of a, a good indication, I think, of how our culture views the natural world and seems to have kind of a cascading effect down from whales. It's like once people are on board with wanting to help whales, it leads into other species and other habitats and ecosystems. Yeah. And and I think Tess said it once really, really, she put it really well, which was in regards to the Southern residents. um, If we can't save a species as beloved as Southern residents, then what chance does anything else have? And I don't think there's enough commitment to conservation in our culture and our society. And I think that's partly due to the way our society is structured with capitalism being, you know, the, the way, the way our world works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's something that we've talked about a lot on here is just that, you know, we have a lot of symptoms of our environmental issues that are manifested like in the dams or in, toxins, but really the root of it is cultural. Um, and I think that's where, you know, most of our problems stem from, but, you know, we've talked about this idea of the ego and that people just feel the need to be on top and dominate. And I think that that ultimately is what drives, um, those sort of attitudes. And I, you know, it's the whales seem to be a bit more conscious. And I think if we were more conscious like them, if we look to them, like we can ultimately solve our environmental problems. Um, what tools have you found most effective for educating those or how have you been able to use your photography to um, connect other people to wildlife? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've actually, that that was something that kind of is not why I started taking photos. It was more for selfish reasons. I just wanted to, you know, take nice photos and get to know the whales. And then it kind of spiraled into this other thing through social media. And it's, it's really been a kind of this blessing to be able to reach out to people and connect people from every corner of the earth with these animals and tell their story and seeing how many people jump on board and, and how many kind messages I get from people who say, well, you know, we stopped eating salmon. We had no idea. And we learn, we learn every day through your social media accounts. And, um, it's not, it's through the photography a lot. And it's also what we do on, on the boats as well. Cause Tass and I both uh, run uh, whale watching boats during the summer months. So getting to connect people with nature and, and, and show them what's going on out there, whether that be, you know, with their own eyes or through our photography, I think it's really powerful. It's, it's easy yeah. to forget that a lot of the people that we take out on the water and maybe to an, an extent, the people that follow us on Instagram don't get to experience nature on a daily basis, like a lot of us do that are privileged enough to work with marine mammals. So it might be their only kind of connection, not just to the whales, but to ocean ecosystems. And 
this this idea of giving the whales names, I think, has been a huge opening for the public um, to appreciate them and to understand their plight. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the photography is kind of the easiest language to understand, or maybe I should, maybe that's not the, a fair way to put it. It's a powerful language that mm-hmm. people can easily understand and connect with the animals. I, I don't know if the Southern resident killer whales would be at the forefront of many conversations if it weren't for people telling their story, um, especially with visuals like photos. If we had a big stack of uh, peer-reviewed papers on them, which of course the, the, the list is, the pile's growing higher, uh, the amount of research that's being done on the Southern residents, but that, that doesn't communicate to the general public. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've definitely talked about that. Just like different scientific articles are often inaccessible to the general public just because of language, but also just because that they're in databases that cost money and people aren't going to necessarily pay for that. Um, so that's, that's neat that you guys are able to still spread those messages and make it accessible to pretty much anyone that has access to the internet. Um, yeah, but, um, so you guys do, you guys uh, are living in Canada. Is that correct? Yeah, we're on uh, Vancouver Island. We're just, um, oh. just outside of Cowichan Bay. Nice. Um, so working in the whale watch industry and kind of, I'm sure you guys come over to like the U S side of things. Um, the, it seems as though there's a lot of different polarized attitudes towards whale watching. Um, what is your take on some of the new restrictions? Um, and what would you say to someone who doesn't have the perspective of boat based whale watching? Um, who maybe doesn't think that that's a responsible uh, way of viewing whales. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's the, the hot topic these days and it's, you know, it's a touchy subject and, and, um, you know, whale watchers kind of all get painted with the same brush. And the fact of the matter is we all do things a little bit differently. And I think part of our collective association, we're always kind of coming up with better ways to operate around the animals and, and, uh, control the amount of vessels out there. And, but I, I will say, you know, for, I can only speak from what our, our perspective is. I think what we do is extremely powerful and, and the message that we're able to spread on the boat. And I hope that that's the case amongst most operators is I think there's an obligation that if you're out there watching these animals, whether it be humpbacks or bigs or residents that you, you talk about conservation issues and you have the, the difficult discussions because they are vastly more important than the fluffy stuff. And that's something that we, we take over onto our tours. And I, I think you know, if you look at the science, as long as boats are operating um, properly around the whales, you, your impact is minimal. The The problem that comes for the most part out there is during the summer, this is not a quiet area. I mean, there's lots of pleasure boats and ferries and whale watch boats and freighters and all that stuff. And the vast majority of these infractions are coming from pleasure boats. So I, I will say that we're, we're going to actually start keeping data on this this, this upcoming season how many times Tassie, myself and all the other operators out there are stopping pleasure boats from coming in and running over the whales or operating at high speed around them. And a lot of the time it's not very nice language that we receive back, but um, 
I do believe that we're stewards out there for them. And uh, I, I think there is a place for it and everything has to be monitored and, and of course regulated and all that stuff. So that's, that's the key. And I think some of the regulation that's come through is good. Um, like some of the stuff that the Canadian government did last year, as far as, you know, putting more money towards salmon enhancement, uh, et cetera. But some of it is definitely, you know, just, just for show. I mean, those, those shutdown zones along the Pender, Pender shoreline and along the Saturna shoreline were, were, you know, that was a joke. The whales weren't there once and no boat was allowed in there, no boat whatsoever because it was a whale sanctuary zone. It also coincidentally is where all those million dollar homes were, where DFO got their most complaints from. So eliminating a lot of paperwork for them, I'm sure. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, yeah, that's kind of crazy. Uh, there's, it seems like there's definitely a lot of like effort that goes into the whales. But what we're noticing too, kind of as we've done this podcast more, is there's like even people that are saying that they're willing to help or people that are part of a team. We find that either you know they argue with one another or maybe don't have the best intentions or the purest intentions. So that's always difficult. Um, but I appreciate you bringing that up because that's an interesting perspective and something to look at. And we need to have you know, those difficult conversations or those uncomfortable conversations so we can actually make an effective change. Um, what do you think is the best way to educate the rec boaters? Or go ahead and say what you were going to say. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to, what was I going to say? <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that, you know, a lot of the time when you hear the the narrative of whale watching is is killing the whales, I think it's important to to let listeners know and let people know that the the amount of times that we watch Southern residents is very few now. Um, this year, because of the Transport Canada agreement that we had with the association, we we didn't watch. I think I probably had maybe six encounters with them from March until November, and the, oh, the wow. rest of that was with with uh, Biggs killer whales and humpback whales, um, both populations of which are, are growing. So. Um, I, I know there's a common narrative that we hear from the Gulf Islands groups and the San Juan groups that, you know, these whales are dying because they're surrounded by boats. But the fact of the matter is we're not really seeing them not all that much. And that's partly due to the fact of our agreement, but it's also partly due to the fact that they're just not here right now. The last few years, you know, they're just not here during the summer months. There's no fish for them. And as soon as the fish come in, guess who shows up? Whales. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's definitely um, sorry, an important and, yeah, thing to highlight. Yeah, and what sorry, was what was your your next question? Oh, um, the next question, I forgot I, what you asked me. Yes, um, just what do you think is like the best way to educate um, recreational boaters? Because you said you know you didn't necessarily always get the best response, um, but what do you think is like has been an effective tool in helping them to learn how to behave while out on the water? Yeah, um, it's a, it's a tough one because you feel like it's just a constant uphill battle. And I think a lot of it, there is, of course, the odd situation where it's, you know, they're, they're knowledge, knowledgeable. They're breaking the rules with full knowledge of what they're doing. But I think most of the cases are just um, ignorance and, and they just don't know. And, and the, the problem, I think, that's not talked about enough is you, you constantly hear about distance and distance. 100 meters, 200 meters, 300 meters. And there's very little talk about speed. And I think this needs to become from, you know, the beginning of pleasure boat courses and these guys taking their, their licenses is to understand how their speed 
create sound underwater and how that sound affects marine wildlife, particularly whales and dolphins. So we see guys that they'll, they'll keep 100 meters or 200 meters away, but they're ripping around at 25 knots. You know, it's, it's better to be at 100 meters doing five knots than 200 meters doing 20. And that's proven right. by science. So I think the, 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 the conversation on speed needs to become a lot more prevalent than it is now. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, and also, you know, speed contributes to the noise pollution as well. So that's another factor to consider when thinking about things that are going to impact them. Um, do you have any particularly meaningful experiences with the Southern residents? Uh, yeah. How long do you have? <laughs> um, I mean, w- these episodes have gone from like 45 minutes to an hour. So however long you want to talk is fine. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll try and keep it in an appropriate length. Um, I suppose the the most major kind of moment, maybe with any any uh, species I've ever had out there, was with the southern residents. It was after a it was almost a two week long absence. Um, this was back in 2012. They had been gone for almost two weeks, which in the middle of the summertime, fairly atypical behavior for them. Um, and I think we were all growing kind of weary because at this stage of the game, the big killer whales had not uh, been as prevalent as they are these days in the Salish Sea and humpbacks were still kind of few and far between. So we had several days in a row where um, we, we couldn't find any um, big cetaceans for our passengers. And that always gets a bit um, <laughs> mentally taxing if it goes on for too many days in a row. And um, and then one morning we woke up and the lime kiln hydrophones were just like lit up with Southern resident calls. And almost every member of the population had returned um, to the kind of inner waters of the Salish Sea, and they were making their way up Harrow Strait, J's, K's, and L's, um, all kinds of chatting. And the Center for Whale Research boat was out on the water doing head count on everybody, making sure everybody was there. And they counted everybody that they expected to see, except for J37 uh, or Heishka. She was MIA. So it took them the remainder of the day to locate her. And she was actually away from the rest of the whales on her own, kind of in the middle of Harrow Strait. And when they found her, she had a brand new little calf with her. Like she probably gave birth to it, you know, an hour or something before they found her, maybe even less than that. It's dorsal fin was still flopped over and, this was uh, J49 or Tila Minguez, I believe is how you pronounce his uh, nickname. It's a, a Salish word, co-Salish word for singing grandchild because he, uh, J49, is the was the su- suspected great-great-grandson of uh, Granny um, or J2. Nice. So there, there he was, tiny little thing, and... Uh, we we didn't know that there was a new calf um, until we got out there, and we happened to encounter J-Pod. This was pretty late in the day, and 
uh, J-Pod had split off from K-N-L-Pod. K-N-L-Pod kind of turned around and started going back down Harrow Strait. J-Pod kept going north. And when we found them, they were just meeting up with Heishka and her new little baby. So we got to be there, like right when the whole pod met this calf for the first time. It was only two oh or three gosh. hours old. Yeah. And it was pretty remarkable. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on at the times. Of course, we didn't really have the same social networks that we have now. Um, back then, I'm sure if that were to happen today, we, we, everybody and their grandma and their grandma's chihuahua would know that J-Pod had a new calf, but we didn't know yet. So we just saw this tangle of whales they were like splashing and rolling over each other and every once in a while i'd catch a glimpse of something and i thought it was maybe a mm-hmm. harbor porpoise because they do occasionally um chase down harbor porpoise and will sometimes kind of um push their bodies around so here's j49 as it turns out not a harbor porpoise and they were kind of passing him from whale to whale and at one point, L87 or Onyx, who is kind of an honorary J-Pod whale, rolled over mm-hmm. and he had the baby kind of draped across his chest, like in between his pectoral flippers. It was amazing. Oh, that's so <laughs> we cool. It a, a baby shower, whale baby a shower. Ba- that's <laughs> so cute. Oh, my god! So that gosh. was a re- remarkable thing to witness. Um yeah, there was, you could almost feel there was some kind of heightened emotion. Um, I'd never seen the animals behaving like that before. So it was, it was something else. That's, yeah. Wow. That's super cool. I, I bet there's probably not many people that get to see that. Cause what are the odds you're going to be there right when they have the baby? That's so cool. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Do you guys have any other experiences that have been really cool? I don't know. Gary, do you have something you want to share? Oh, uh, I mean, how do you top that, right? An old baby killer whale. But um, <laughs> I, I've had, uh, you know, back when I first started back in 2007, we used to see the residents so often and, and super pods quite regularly in the summer and, and right up near Vancouver. And you, you almost took it for granted. But looking back on it now, just th- those days when you're out there with, you know, back then, 90 killer whales, and they're all socializing, and you just don't really realize how special it was until it was gone. And then we had a, a day, I think it was in 2017, where, you know, this whole Southern resident um, awareness really started to take off, and the whole world was talking about them, and there's, uh, there's kind of almost anxiety every time you are around them because... You know, there's just so much drama around the population. But we had this one evening trip where we we got a report of them up in the Strait of Georgia. And it was late in the year, so there wasn't much boat traffic out there. And we kind of just went up there on a whim looking. And as we came out of Polier, it was the Polier Pass into the Strait of Georgia. It was just like flat calm, like a lake with zero wind. But it was kind of overcast skies as well. It was really gray. And it was almost like the water in the sky. You can really tell where it's separated. And you know, we're just like looking around and all of a sudden we see a couple blows. And as we kind of get closer, we realize it's, it's almost all of them. Not quite. Like, I don't think the L54s were there, but everybody else is there. And 
mm-hmm. were all being super social and we just shut down and dropped the hydrophone and just watched and it was just watched and listened and you know they're just all over the place it was just really magical and that was one of the better ones and I think probably one of the most memorable ones would be with J50 the day that J50 didn't come back and that's not obviously a fun story but something that I'll, I'll never forget and going back to your first question about our culture and and uh, how we how we conserve these species in our, our culture and that was a day when I realized that there's a there's a real problem you know there's talk about a, a mother that's just lost her baby I mean for weeks this whale was chased around fired darts at it all this kind of stuff and a, she was obviously really sick and then finally they came back and there, there's J-16, but no J-50 beside her, and a helicopter hovering above, you know, getting as low as they can, trying to find J-50. And, you know, there's right. boats on either side, and there's research boats, and there's a big, and then this big fish trawling boat, this mm-hmm. bottom trawler came plowing in from the west and went right over top of them. And I just thought, and, and the enforcement boats didn't do anything. And I right. just thought, like, here comes a boat that just ended up catching all this Chinook as bycatch. They run right over a group of whales, someone who's just lost Jeez. her baby, and there's no, yeah, that, that to me, I think, was a real kind of eye-opening experience. Like, we need a, a real fundamental shift in the way we do things. Yeah, I think so. It's, it is very clearly a, a matter of where people's values lie, and we definitely need to hold ourselves and others accountable. But there's, you know, for me, I think there's no reason why you know, money or something else should be prioritized over someone else's life, whether that be, you know, a human or a whale. Um, but I think that just goes to show where people's values lie and we just need to, um, hold others accountable for what they think is acceptable behavior and what's not. So that's, yeah, I think that's a really good, um, story to kind of, you know, give an example of what it's like. So, yeah. Um, what do you think we can learn from the Southern residents? Or whales in general? Uh, I guess, uh, that's a, uh, that's a great question. And it kind of ties back in, I think with your, one of your first questions about how they fit into our culture. Um, I think they highlight how we treat the natural world as a whole and maybe some of our speciesist tendencies um, where we tend to favor certain species over another for, um, you know, kind of arbitrary reasons. We all like whales because they're big, charismatic megafauna that are, um, you know, intelligent though, I would ask your listeners, what is intelligence really? Um, mm-hmm. and why do we think whales are so intelligent compared to, um, another species? Um, so I think it, they really show us how we treat the natural world and why we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how would you like, um, define whale intelligence, or do you think that whales are more intelligent than other animals? Yeah, that's a like Tessa. It's like what? Well, what's the definition of intelligence? And and uh, 
who made that up while we did and we conveniently put ourselves at the top of it. But I will say that I think, you know, they're just amazing at what they do and the, the fact that they have such complex language and they clearly share stories and they come up with these really innovative hunting techniques uh, all over the world. You know, the most, you don't become the most widely distributed mammal on planet earth next to humans without uh, having a little bit of ingenuity. And so as far as problem solving goes, um, knowledge of things like physics, being able to wave wash Weddell seals off ice floes in Antarctica and, or slide their bodies up onto beaches in Patagonia. I think, um, it's incredible how innovative they are and how family oriented they are uh, and how they take care of one another, which is um, something I find pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I find most remarkable is that they don't seem to turn on each other, even when things are bad or they're in an adverse or complicated situation. Um, and they didn't even turn on people when people were taking their babies from them during the captures. Um, you know, I think that they probably maintain a higher um, emotional intelligence maybe than other animals. Um, but yeah. it's it's definitely, and like, I think that that's something that we should turn to them and look for too, you know, is the way that they they treat their communities and they'll accept, you know, other whales into the community or, or prioritize feeding the the young or the sick even when, you know, everybody's hungry, so... Yeah, yeah, I think, and we're still, our understanding of their the social complexity is, is still evolving, you know, like you just look at in 2016 when we saw that, the first case of um, killer whale infanticide when we had the T-68s um, end up killing T-46B5, not for consumption, but for presumably for uh, sexual selection, which is something that kind of opened the door to a whole bunch of other questions, but I think probably the most fascinating part of that is that it's it's the only species. I mean, infanticide has been seen with many different species, but it's usually just the male. And the fact that his mother helped him is the fact that it's the only other species that had done that next to humans. So I think there's so many parallels between us and them. And that's why we kind of identify so much with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, we Ellie just had one other question. Um, so do you believe the absence of the Southern residents from their t- traditional summer core habitat will be to their benefit? Um, do you think they're finding better hunting grounds wherever they're going? And what do you hope for, or what do you hope, what hope do you think this adaptive behavior has for their survival? I think um, just to back up a bit, like, this this kind of core region of the Salish Sea has been their main summer habitat since we've been keeping records of them, basically since 1974, when the Center for Wild Research did their first um, census on the population. But the bigger picture could be that they move in and out of this region um, more often than they have sort of in the last few decades since we've been paying attention mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, their absence from the inner sailor sea, um, this summer and kind of building over the last few years, um, could be something that they have stored in their memory bank. When times get lean here, they move elsewhere. And, uh, you know, I'm not, that's not to say that things aren't, aren't, aren't good because they're not here for a reason. Um, 
you know, we, we know that the, the Chinook salmon are um, fewer and further between, particularly in the Fraser River, which is the, the biggest portion of their diet in the summertime, at least when they're here. So I think they're, they're trying and uh, by all accounts of the research folks that were out offshore with them this summer, they say that they're looking pretty good. So I think they got it figured out for, for this season. And hopefully the, the West coast runs of, of salmon are, are good next year. And hopefully we can get it figured out that we can bring the Chinook back to the Fraser. And uh, then we might see the Southern residents return to the inner sailor sea more than they have the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're basically going where the fish are. So I think if they're not here, then they're, they're obviously finding more fish out there. And the fact that they didn't even really poke their noses into the inner sailor sea this summer says that they must have been finding and quite a bit of, of fish out there. And like Tassley said, most of the researchers we spoke with said they look pretty, they look pretty good. Awesome. Yeah. That's kind of what we heard as well. So hopefully, you know, we can, we can fix it so they can come back here. But until then I'm, I'm glad that they're finding what they need to find. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts or things that you want to share with people? Um. Yeah, I guess when you look at the southern resident recovery and I guess salmon recovery, which is the most important thing for their survival, it can be kind of daunting because, you know, it's there's so many issues from from dams to salmon farms to big cities built up around major salmon-bearing rivers. And it can become so overwhelming to see the list of issues, and it almost seems like too big a task to tackle. But I think... I'd like to encourage people and your listeners to, you know, just take your small steps, do your, do your daily little thing, whether that's giving up salmon or, you know, using more environmentally responsible cleaners, all those little things, you know, just do, do your bit. And, and if we all do a little bit, it's, it is going to make a difference and it does build momentum and change and, and push people to more, more of a lifestyle of conservation. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, Tulsi, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I think uh, Gary summed it up pretty nicely there. And I know it's, it's easy for me to say, but don't get too down about it. You know, their nature is very resilient and the whales are willing to fight for themselves. And we've seen that with their change of behavior. So we should be more than willing to fight for them. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I don't think we have any other questions. Um, so thank you for taking the time to let us interview you and happy birthday, Gary. I hope you, you guys are doing something fun today. Um, but yeah, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Um, yeah, and then thank you for having we, us on. And, and... Yeah, of course. Um, when we end the call, just make sure you leave the app open or the website open so that it will download completely. Um, and then we should have this episode posted next okay. Friday. Okay, great. Sounds good. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you very much. I hope we were uh, coherent and enlightening. <laughs> yes, that you definitely were. Thank you. Okay, Thank thanks. you. Right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, Thank thanks, you. Guys.